just north of Richmond, Virginia, up in the beautiful farmland there, is a facility owned by you, by our convention, by the International Mission Board. It's called the MLC. It's called the Missionary Learning Center. We've sent families from our church to the MLC uh, as a prelude to them being deployed to the international mission field. And it's there at the MLC that these families would go and they have an apartment there and they spend really months uh, just beginning to get ready to go to the mission field. I say beginning to get ready to because even after they're deployed, they're still learning and still adapting, many of them for, for a lifetime. And at the MLC, you go through classes, you spend time in community with other other folks who are called to the mission field. You begin to learn more about hermeneutics, more about cultural adaptation, more about what it means to take the gospel to places that have never heard, where there are really huge differences in language and culture and understanding. So our, our desire and goal is that really it's a vision that we have that our church would be an MLC all the time. That here it would be a missionary learning center for those who are disciples of Christ, for us who are his disciples and are called to go. But specifically over the next four weeks, we're going to take some time to, to really get into what it means to take the gospel into our culture. You see, as, as Christ followers, we've seen over the last four weeks that we're called to be disciple makers. And that discipling, remember the image that you saw that Jason had up here of people lined up, is all the way from those who are unreached with the gospel, with no access to the gospel, all the way to those who are trained and training. And the goal is not to take this person over here immediately over there. The goal is to move each individual a little more toward that maturity, a little bit more toward Jesus, a little bit more toward maturity in Christ. That's the goal. So now the question is, how do we as disciples take this gospel message out of this MLC, out of this missionary learning center, and take it to a culture around us, take it to our community? How can we do that more effectively? And so we're going to focus on what it means for us to engage the culture with the gospel. And Acts 17 will be the roadmap that we follow over the next few weeks as we take this journey. Turn with me there, if you will, to um, Acts 17. And, and as you turn there, as we think about Paul's time here in the, in the city of Athens, there's four questions that are in your sermon notes, and these are the, these are the questions that we're going to continue to ask ourselves over the next few weeks, okay? This is kind of the direction we're going to go. And the first thing we're going to consider today, as JT has already done a really good job of pointing out, that Paul's experience in Athens is very revealing, very revealing, about how he approaches this culture. And the question is, what is a worldview and what is yours? You have it whether you know it or not. And it impacts everything about your life, everything. So what is a worldview and what is yours? The second question that we'll look at from Paul's perspective and, and from his response to the people in Athens is, what do I see? 
as I look at this culture around me? And, and what is, what is it, my, my response? How does it make me feel? When I, when I see the rainbow flag, when I see a Black Lives Matter sign in someone's yard, when I see bumper stickers for equal rights and for justice, how does it make me feel when I see those? We'll consider that. Thirdly, as we look at Paul's approach to the gospel, we will see that it differs, yet it's effective. And so the question is going to be, how do I speak the gospel into my culture? And how can I be better at that? How can I do a better job with my witness and, and speaking the truths of, of Christ, biblical truth, into the people around me? And the last question we'll look at will then is just more on how Paul oriented his message depending on his audience. And how can I do that? Now remember, he does not change the message. But he does change how he communicates it. And it's critical that we get it. How important that is. So that's, that's kind of the direction we're going to look at. Let's, let's kind of get the context by looking at Acts chapter 17. Okay? This is, this is part of Paul's second missionary journey. The Jerusalem Council has, has taken place, and now Paul and Silas have been out. There's been a dis, dispute, if you will, between Saul and between Paul and Barnabas. They've divided, but Paul and Silas have gone out, and they find themselves headed toward Athens. But first, look in chapter 17, starting in verse 1. I just want to read a portion of it to kind of help us get the context. It says in Acts 17, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, that's not how you pronounce it, Apollonia, these words are tough, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few leading women. But, in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And they respond, as they typically have throughout the book of Acts, and as they'll continue to. But notice what it says in verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So Paul and Silas leave Thessalonica and are then going to Berea. Notice what happened in Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul, in verse 10, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So there's this pattern. Paul goes into the Jewish synagogue. And those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews, and here we go again, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, 
Also, they came there to agitating and stirring up the crowd. So there's a pattern that we see. Paul, as he goes into a city, first goes to the synagogue. He goes into a religious setting. He goes into some place where people have a biblical understanding enough that when he talks about Moses, they know who he's talking about. That when he talks about the prophets, a little bell goes off in their mind and they go, oh, I know. And when he talks about the Messiah... They can take hold of that. There's a part of Paul's culture, a part of those cities that he goes into where that's the reality. That's true in Roxborough, right? But there are a lot of people in Roxborough who even though this might be the buckle belt, you know, the buckle of the Bible belt, they're not going to know the Old Testament story. They're not going to know who the prophets are. They certainly aren't going to be able to identify with some Messiah. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Our culture is different than it was. We're not in a biblically literate culture, even in Roxborough. How many of us in My Life Matters have talked to kids who are old enough that they should have known but have never heard anything about Jesus other than a curse word? Paul addressed those in the synagogue with a biblical understanding, and and he started there. But notice, now starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, well, I I skipped that he he, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. And in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's revealing in verse 21. It was an entertainment-based culture. All right. Social media would have blown up there if it had been there, just like it does here. Because we're on a diet of tweets and commercials and 30 second sound bites that are as far removed from the truth most of the time as the earth is from the sun. But yet we diet on it. We feed on it. And these people in Athens, all they were interested in was hearing or telling something new. And so Paul is right in the middle of this culture. Let's just go on and finish. Let me read in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Now, let me just prelude with this. What I'm about to read might take two minutes. But think of this as an outline, not as a transcript. Because these interchanges in the Areopagus, which was like the cultural center of Athens, 
could go on for hours, even days. Think of these sentences as sermon points or something, okay? Headings of paragraphs and pages. Because this dialogue didn't last two minutes. I believe it lasted hours. And it continued, the text tells us, even afterwards. So this is just Luke's really, really quick, brief summary of what went on. All right? So just keep that in mind. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there's the the two minutes, and there's the response, as we see Paul there in this place. But I want you to notice something. Back up in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 16, it said, excuse me, I'll turn the page, chapter 17, in verse 16 it says, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. I find that interesting. What's interesting to me about that is that I can just imagine, I don't know, maybe Paul, I don't know where he's waiting, I don't know what he's doing. I envision somebody at a bus station or a train station or someplace is waiting for somebody to come in. My point, though, what really stands out to me about this is Paul is not off. He's not taking a day off from his calling. Even as Paul is waiting, he is thinking and he is seeing and he is responding to what's going on around him. You see, Paul was never off mission. See that? He was never... He was never taking a break, if you will. He was always aware of and on mission in the fact that Jesus had called him and and, and chosen him. And that Jesus is building his kingdom. And Paul was always cognizant of that. It's always in the back of his mind. In every conversation and everything that's going on. He's alert to his surroundings. And and here's, as we were talking about this in the office this week... um, This idea that 
mission is who we are. It's not just a little something that we do or add on to our daily routine. It's who we are. And Paul was on mission even as he was there waiting. And notice as I read through this that even though that gospel message may be presented differently, it never changes. Where was it Paul ended up every time, whether he was in the synagogue or in the Areopagus? He ended up with the resurrection. He ended up with Christ. And although he might not have stated his name in the Areopagus, he was talking about this one who had been killed and resurrected. He always ended up on Christ. Always ended up with the resurrection. Yes, the message does change in the way it's presented, but not in its content. And that's what we see with Paul. Now, as we get back into that section where he's there in the Areopagus, I want us to think about a couple of things. What the gospel should do for us as we are sent. What it should do for us as we are on mission, okay? And here's the first one. The gospel shapes our hearts to be for others, not against them. It shapes our heart to be for others and not against them. You see, Paul came to Athens as the cultural center, really, of the ancient world. And it was the center of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. These were the men who had come from that city or were in it. It was the center of medicine. It was the center of arts. It was the center of politics. It was the center of culture. This is the city that he was in. It was the center of science and astronomy and mathematics. And and what Paul saw in that city moved him. But listen, he was not moved by the arts or the philosophies, politics, or any of those things. What he was moved by, it says... As he looked around that city, he was moved by the lostness. He was moved by what he saw as just a complete emptiness spiritually. It it says that he saw all these gods, all of these idols, all of these things throughout the city. He saw the shallowness, really, of their pursuits, their entertainment-based culture. And as he saw this culture immersed in this idolatry, it troubled him. All right. The text says there that he was stirred, if you will, or he was provoked. There is an element there of righteous indignation on one hand that God is not being worshipped. Now, this was a godless city, a godless culture, but by godless, I mean little g. Not godless in the fact that there weren't any. There were thousands of them. It was godless big g. The true God was not being worshipped or loved or served. And that provoked Paul. But that is matched, if not exceeded, by his compassion for those that are lost in this darkness. Lost in this idolatry. Lost in these empty, man-centered worldviews. And so, even though it was full of idols, it was empty. And even though these people wanted to be entertained, they were seeking what they thought they wanted in all the wrong places. And Paul's heart was broken over that. He was provoked over that. He was stirred over that. And here's here's the deal. Paul, as his heart was being stirred, was opposed. All right? And his heart was for those people 
even though they were opposed to him. You can pick that up if you see that word that they use there for him, where they call him a babbler. All right? Presenting some kind of strange saying. What does this babbler wish to say? And, and what is this strange preacher bringing this strange message about somebody in the resurrection? And the word babbler there is literally seed picker. And so they're picturing this bird or this chicken that's going around the farmyard, picking up something here, getting a little dab of this and spitting it out over here. So it's not a term of, you know, it's not something good. They're being critical. They're being derogatory when they say these things. And yet Paul's heart is for them even though they're opposed to him. Store that thought away in the back of your mind. That's really, really important. That the gospel will turn our hearts for those that are lost, not against them. And we see that in Paul. The gospel shapes our hearts to be for them. And the gospel motivates our hearts, indeed our lives, to be with them. To be with them where they are. Look what I mean. First, he's in the synagogue. As he often did, he goes into the synagogue to reach the Jews, to reach those who have a biblical understanding, have an Old Testament understanding, but have yet not heard of or responded to Christ. He meets them in the synagogue. Then he meets them, it says, in the marketplace. He reasoned with them in the synagogue, it says in verse 17, but also in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. This is just his walk of life. This is his trips to Walmart. This is his trips to the food lion. This is these places where Paul went every day just as a part of his routine. But even there he was called and sent and on mission. You see that? And even there he took the opportunity to engage as the Lord would open those doors. I had a conversation last week with a, a brother here in the church, one of our new members, who talked about how he engaged in a gospel conversation with someone who was in line at food line. That's what I'm talking about. A total stranger, maybe, but just engaged them with the gospel. And began to. And so Paul met people of Athens. He was with them in the marketplace. And then he met the people of Athens in the Areopagus, in that cultural center. Okay? And here, it says he was brought. I think there was a voluntary aspect of this. But there's also like, here, here's an invitation from the, from the governor, and you don't turn it down. Kind of a deal. All right? The city leaders would like to spend some time with you, Paul. And, okay, I'll clear my calendar then if that's what you want. And so here he is. My point in this is that he is willing to be with these people. And, and here's, here's something that, that we've gleaned as we've been working through this and studying it. Reading Chan's book on, gospel, on uh, cultural hermeneutics and how we reach our, our world. We are, we are quick as, as church people to... Well, not as quick as we should be, but sometimes our first step is to invite somebody to come to church with us. And I would suggest to you, based on this pattern in here, and just based on the way people live their lives today, that if we and I, if you and I, if we are not willing to go with them to their soccer matches, to their cookouts, to their restaurants, to the things that, that they, they being whoever it is that 
is not a part of the community of faith. If we're not willing to go with them where they go, then I think we need to be really careful about inviting them to come with us to this place. We're missing a really big, important step. Because if if they don't know I care, if they don't know I'm interested enough in them and and they're not just to me some spiritual project, so Paul, Paul understood that, I believe. And I believe that's a pattern that we see here. And the gospel motivates our hearts to be with people. The gospel also enlightens us and it educates us in the truth. Now, here's what I mean by that. Notice in verse 18, it says, Some of the Epicurean and some of the Stoic philosophers conversed with him there. So, Paul is here at the center of this cultural community. And, and what, what we see here is that Paul evidences for us something that the gospel does in us, which enlightens us to the truth whenever and wherever we see it. Even if it's not in body, in total, what we would hold to. What I mean by that is that when we are grounded in the truth of the gospel, we don't have to be afraid of truth wherever and whenever we see it. That's critically important for us. We tend to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater based on labels and distinctions. And we're not willing to see the element of truth, God-given truth, even in a godless philosophy, even in, a, even in an unchristian group. And we need to be deeper than that. We don't need to be, we don't need to be so lazy. We need, to, we need to observe it and understand. Here's what Paul was doing. He was exegeting the Scriptures when necessary. And was grounded in that. He was also exegeting the culture. Studying it. Understanding it. And applying what he studied and saw in the culture to how he communicated the unchanging truth of God's word. He exegeted the culture and the scriptures. And that's needed. The MLC here at Westwood is just like the MLC up there in Richmond. That... As we are grounded in the Word and growing in the Word, we go, but we will only go so far as our cultural understanding will let us go. Or else we'll run into roadblocks and hard hearts that just won't listen at all because it's not even the language they speak. There's no realm of understanding. There's no context for getting the message that they're talking about. Now, the problem with culture is that it's not designed to be studied, it's designed to consume us. Right? That's the problem with culture. That's the problem with the the, the environment around us. Around us, we are surrounded by a whole population of people that expose themselves to art, to media, to music, to entertainment, to relationships, to our psyche. We respond to our feelings and our notions without any critical understanding of where that might lead us. 
But we as God's people are to approach the culture differently. We study the things that influence people without consuming them to the degree that they change us. And that's hard. I know it's hard. But that's part of what we're called to do as we exegete the culture around us. The gospel enlightens us to the reality of truth, even where we might not agree with the whole body. And then it enables us to affirm those truths when we see them. Right? Paul said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, some have taken that to be a, a criticism of the culture. I don't, I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. Now, he may be touching on the fact that you guys, you guys are missing it here, and he's going he's gonna to nail that. But he says, I see that you are very religious. You are spiritual. Even deeper than that, you are looking for the transcendent. You're looking for something more. You're looking for something deeper. You're looking beyond the surface and looking for something that's going to give meaning to your lives and a purpose and an intention. That's what, I, that's what idolatry is. It's our, man-made, it's our man-made efforts to do and reach and attain what only God can do in us through Himself. But Paul says, I perceive that you're spiritual. I perceive that you, you have a spiritual yearning. You're religious. And, and he affirms that in them. How, how do we do that? Or do we? So when we see one of our neighbors with a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard, what is our response? Maybe not verbal to that individual or to that family, but just, just in your own mind. What is your response to that? Can we, as we should, affirm that yes, black lives matter? They do matter. They do matter because that individual is made in the image of God. That individual is made in the image of God, as is every human being on this planet at every stage of life, whether pre-born or last day. Every human being possesses human rights, human dignity. And by extension, they, they, they hold within themselves that very image of God. We can affirm that, right? Amen? We can affirm that without affirming the movement. Without affirming the, the international organization that espouses a worldview that we just cannot embrace or support. But do those individuals know that we affirm them? What about our neighbors who fly a rainbow flag? What can we affirm to that household? What can we affirm to that family? Can we affirm the God-given gift of human sexuality? Can we affirm in them the deep need to be known and loved by others that God put in them when He created them? Can we affirm in them that what they are hungering for and what their mind may tell them that they need is what God put in them in the beginning in that desire to be loved and known and cared for. But that their emotions and their feelings and some semblance of science cannot overrule God's truth and His Word in the way they were made. We can affirm those things. 
We can affirm the equal worth and value and giftedness of men and women without erasing the God-given truths about distinctives and roles and responsibilities. All those things we can affirm, church, that's not hypothetical. That's what the gospel should be doing in our hearts. The gospel enlightens us and educates us about the truth, even truths that are hidden, and enables us to affirm them where we can. And as it does so, it also educates us then on how to confront those truths. Indeed, sometimes how to tear them down and rebuild them through biblical truth. You see, these, these philosophers, these, these pagan philosophers that were there, these aren't empty hard drives. I read that this week. These aren't just empty hard drives that Paul wants to fill with something. This hard drive in these philosophical mindsets, in this culture around us, has to be replaced. Erased and replaced. You see, the, those who called themselves the Epicureans... Well, how, how do you define that? I'll tell you what, watch this, watch this little video for about 30 or 40 seconds. This, this gives you a pretty good understanding, I think, of an Epicurean mindset. I just can't stand still when I watch that. Clap along if you feel happy. Now, some of you need a little more of that. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you, some of you need more than that, okay? John Stott says that the Epicurean philosophy could kind of be summarized as, as, as a sense of just escape and enjoyment of pleasure. If it feels good, do it. There's not really any consequences. Just, you know, be happy. That was kind of the Epicurean. That's just a really brief summary of the Epicurean mindset, okay? Just, just enjoy life. Just enjoy it. The gods enjoy it. We should too. On the other hand, there's the Stoic philosophy. I think this captures that fairly well. Listen to this one. No, not that one. The next one. I don't feel like dancing to this one. Just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Just in the wind. All we are is just in the wind. So if the Epicureans said, it feels good to do it. There's not any consequences. 
And the Stoics say, just bear up under it, grin and bear it. There's nothing you can do about it. We're just dust in the wind. All our dreams and all our efforts one day will crumble. That's true. It will. But for these Epicureans and these Stoics, this was more than just a philosophy. This was a a way that they lived life. This was their mindset. This was the way they, they saw everything that they did. And so, as we, as we think about the philosophies of the world around us, and as we th- think about even the mindset and worldviews of the people who are our next-door neighbors, I mean, I see some of this in every one of them. A little Epicurean here, a little Stoicism here. I can identify more with the Stoic. I, I, I might be called a modern Stoic in some ways. But even as we assess and look at the culture around us, the gospel enlightens us to do that and then apply the scriptures to it. The gospel also then educates us and enlightens us in this truth so we can speak Christ into those situations and settings and cultures appropriately. And that's what we're going to spend some time doing over the next few weeks. It's just assessing how best to do that. Now there's some questions that are in your sermon notes. And those questions are going to kind of be the application points, if you will, or, or how we want to apply these messages over the next three or four weeks. Okay? Now, the first one I've touched on already. What is a worldview and what is yours? And I, I don't want to go back. I'm not going to take the time to do that. But just understand that your worldview, and you do have one, represents your most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about everything, even though you may not even be aware of that. Who you are, why you're here, where you're headed, that's all entailed in your worldview. The meaning and the purpose of life. How you find a full and meaningful life now, and how you face the end of that life. All of that's entailed in your worldview. And it's shaped by so many different influences. Okay, It's shaped by... By your family, it's shaped by your community, this community or the community that you're in. Your worldview is shaped by, by what goes on around us. All of that impacts that. Well, what is a Christian's worldview? Well, Paul shows us that as we see when we get into this text. Paul's Christian worldview is what he communicates to the people there in the Areopagus, what he communicates to those philosophers. Everything he says and does is filtered through God's self-revelation of himself in, in creation first, then in his word, the Old Testament and the New, and then in Christ. And everything is filtered through that reality. Everything. That the eternal God has revealed himself, made himself known. And Paul will say, he's not far away from you. And Paul communicated that using their own song lyrics. Using their own poets. He looked at that culture and he said, you're singing long neck beer, never done me wrong. And I can show you the one who really is the one who does that. That's a good place to start with the gospel, church. Start there. Jump right in there. Paul gives us a pattern for how to do that. 
What is your worldview? Our worldview has to be centered on the fact that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. That by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And in him are hidden all the riches of wisdom and the knowledge of God. Colossians 2. That's where our worldview must begin. And we see everything through the lens of Christ. Do you see that? Oh, listen, we listen, many of us, to the same music as the world does. We eat some of the same foods. We go to the same stores. We go to the same movies. We go to the same restaurants. We go to the same sporting events. We see the same orphans and widows and people of minority. We see the same political issues. We see the same world issues, but we see them differently. We see them differently. We see them through gospel eyes. We see the ocean differently. We listen to the birds differently. We sit out in the woods in our deer stands and we do it differently. We see money differently and sex differently and family and singleness differently. We see them all. Everybody sees them. We see them differently. And that should change the way then that we speak to and address these needs in the lives of others. Second question we're going to deal with over the next few weeks is what does our culture say about identity? And how can I speak the gospel into that? And by identity, I mean who we are. Right? Our culture says we're sexual beings based on our feelings. No! The Bible says we are made in the image of God. And we start there. I listened to a podcast by Sam Alberry a couple of weeks ago, and I really appreciated something that he said. Listen to this. He said, recently... We have lived in a moralistic age where we felt the need to show people that they're sinners. Now we're living in an anxious age where we need to show people that they have worth. A lot of people instinctively think that they don't. And it's that very worth that then accounts for the seriousness of sin when we get to explaining that part as well. And having a counterculture that includes being in a church that creates a sense of safety For any kind of sinner to come in and in time to be confronted with their sin, confess it, and find their burdens lifted in Jesus. What Sam says is that so often we start in our gospel presentations and conversations in Genesis 3 with the fall. And that's a good place. We must go there. But in an anxious age like we live today where JT mentioned earlier, everything is unsure and we're we're fearful and we just don't know. There's an edginess. Maybe we need to back up, yes, to Genesis 1. That you are made in the image of God and that He has a good purpose and intention for you. And in Him and in Him alone, you will find it. Not anywhere else. So what does our culture say about identity, about who we are? Next, what does our culture say about life, about how we're supposed to live? Is it Epicurean? Just live it up, whatever. Is it Stoicism? we just got to grin and bear it. It's going to be tough. I hope you have bootstraps long enough to pull yourself up by. Is that, is that the way we look at it? 
Or can we say, no, God is sovereign and good and over all of these circumstances. And he is with us through these difficult times. And the life that we seek and the fullness and the fulfillment that we want to enjoy is found only in Christ. Not in the stuff. Just in him. What does our culture say about how we're supposed to live? And what does it say about fulfillment? I've already touched on that. How can I speak the gospel into that, that it's only in Christ that we're going to flourish? I'm going to leave you with four words about how we answer those questions and how we do it for those people around us. These aren't in your sermon notes, but I can, I can post them for you. Four words. Immerse, agree, confront, and Christ. Those are the four words. Four strategies to help you answer these questions, maybe in your own life and in the lives of others. Immerse. Paul was immersed in Scripture, and he had to be immersed in Scripture before he could be immersed in the culture. Otherwise, he would have lost his footing, his grounding, and been swept away. Being immersed in culture is not something for the faint-hearted and the lazy believer. You have to be, you have to be immersed in Scripture. Now, that's not an excuse not to if you find yourself feeling more inclined toward the lazy side. Because the command we have, church, is to go and engage. And we can't do that from a distance. Immerse. Secondly, agree. Find a common ground that you can agree on with religions, ideologies, worldviews. There, there, are, there is a common ground there someplace. That's why in Muslim countries, our missionaries are trained and equipped to start with the Koran sometimes. Not to start with, but to refer to the Koran. That's why sometimes when we're engaging with our, with our Latter-day Saints friends, we go to the Book of Mormon. And at least know enough about it to know, you know, this part of it actually is true, but let me, let me show you where that comes from. And with Jehovah's Witnesses, starting with the King James Version of the Bible, which they hold to, even though they've changed it in the New World Translation, my point in all of this is there are points of commonality. There's a place where we can find something to affirm and use that as a door for the gospel. All right? Agree. Thirdly, confront or contradict. Stoics would have agreed with a lot of what Paul had to say. They just left Jesus out of it, so they had nothing. All right? And Paul didn't care about that, and neither should we. Plow in with the gospel, but do it knowledgeably, do it intellectually, do it compassionately. Confront it. And Christ is the fourth. Everything centers on Him. Preach Christ, lift Him up. His life, His unparalleled miracles and the picture of His divinity and what He did. His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His soon-to-be return. Ultimately, that's where this ended up. It ended up a hellfire sermon without the hellfire. He's going to come back and judge you. You need to be ready. As we prepare to come to this table, we're going to declare a worldview. You never thought about it that way, did you? We're going to declare a worldview. At one point in time, we, as is all of humanity, were enslaved in sin. And God, as it's pictured in the Old Testament, came and rescued us through the blood of a lamb. And He led us out. And we're on that journey now, and He's providing for us as we go. 
But one day he's going to bring us to that place where we sit at a table and this picture here, this wafer and this juice, this bread and this wine, it's a picture of the fullness of that banquet that we're going to have in the presence of Jesus. It's a worldview. This world is not all there is. This world cannot satisfy. And I cannot obtain and work for my forgiveness and my standing before God. Jesus alone has done that for me. I've trusted in Him as my Savior, repenting of my sins, and turned to Him. And this is a picture of all that I have in Christ and all that I one day will have for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your Word. It's timeless. It's perfect for us, our culture, our day, and our lives. Father, convict us right now, I pray, of where we've adopted a lifestyle or a worldview or even a philosophy, entertained it maybe, that is contrary to all that we are and all that we have in Christ. Our classmates, our office mates, the world around us is going to loudly proclaim, invite, sometimes even push and influence us away from you. Lord, thank you for the reminder today of who you are, who we are in you, and of the reality in this world that we live in. Help us, Lord, be grounded in Christ, growing in him. And prepare us today and over the next few weeks, Lord, to really understand what it means to go into this culture. Now we ask you to prepare our hearts to come to this table and celebrate Jesus. What he's done for us, continues to do and will do one day, and who we are in Christ, Lord. Help us, help us rest in this view of reality. And I pray that in his name. Amen.